first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone here at South and those who have been attending for being diligent in following the unusual protocols that we have to do during this season. It is a weird time, and none of us like it. However, uh, Michigan is a leader today, <laughs> in a bad way, uh, with the virus itself. Uh, we're being told that we lead all states in cases per capita uh, with uh, positive tests and new virus infections, that Michigan is at the lead of all of this. Now, we as a staff decided not to listen to a lot of the stuff on the media because you can hardly tell what's true and what is not. So we started gauging our concern and our understanding based on our own local hospitals. And our own local hospitals are either at or near capacity with COVID cases. So this is not the time for us to back off. Uh, this is the time for us to continue on. We're hoping and praying that this summer there'll be more release and freedom in our worship. But at the present time, that's not true. And so let me encourage you to be faithful a little bit longer for the sake of others. We have one of our very own who's in the hospital right now and extremely, extremely ill. And you don't know who is going to be affected by this virus. Some have it, and it means next to nothing. And others have it, and it's the end of their earthly life. So I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to encourage you for the good work you're doing. And let's continue on and uh, watch the Lord be victorious in all of this. As uh, we're hearing many great stories, even through the difficulties. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer, shall we? Father, we are so thankful that we serve a God who is never surprised and a God who is in complete control. We're thankful, Lord, that as we rely upon you, whatever may come our way, we can have peace and confidence knowing that your will is being accomplished in and through us. Father, you never promised us that life would be easy. In fact, the very opposite. Those who follow Christ will be treated like the master was, with persecution and sometimes even death. People will not understand us because we're not of this world. But Lord, I pray while we're in this world, may we live in such a Christ-like way that people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And now as we bow before you, we pray that you'll open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, you deserve to gain a few words for the price of your education. And then he would introduce some extraordinarily technical or long or a confusing term invented by theologians, I'm sure, to justify their existence <laughs> and uh, readily used, happily used by pastors to justify our education. One of those words like infralapsarianism, which is the opposite of superlapsarianism, and of course has to do, as you all know, with the timing of the decrees of God. 
extremely speculative. A lot of time might be spent on thinking through the issues. But I think, my opinion of little prophet. Epiphatic theology. Epiphatic theology is the theology that describes God in what he is not. And sometimes ends up being just a viewpoint of negativism. There is the hyperstatic union of Christ. You say, well, what is that? That one um, actually comes from a Greek word that means person. And the theological term refers to the two natures of Christ in one person, divine and human. Uh, I used to think, well, it comes from this Uh, This word hooper, which is hyper, and static, which is ah. And in the nature of Christ, these two natures are kind of ah. You know, how can one be? It means nothing like that. When you try to break down a word and understand it, you often are very confused. But it simply means that in Jesus Christ, there in his person and nature, and we're going to see this word probably next week as we start our study in Hebrews, that Jesus is the very nature of God. And in the person of Christ, there is divine and human. I believe the proper way to pronounce these words is with your nose slightly tilted up in the air. (laughs) And if you have a European accent, it even helps. But there is one of those words that I received in this category, one of those multi-syllable, thousand-dollar words that is profitable and it is the word proto-evangelium. Now, the proto-evangelium is one of those words you can kind of cut in two and understand because the first word is protos, which means first. We have a prototype, which is a model, the first of many to come later. And then evangel is that word that we use all the time. Evangel is the content of the gospel. Evangelism is the sharing of the gospel. Evangelical is the theology that has the gospel at the core. And evangel means good news. So what you have here in this word, this theological term of proto-evangelium is simply the first announcement of the good news. And it is fitting that that first announcement is found in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So you can turn there if you would like to follow along or just take notes. In the glorious beauty of creation, which we find in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, soon everything turns to chaos in Genesis chapter 3. With the appearance of this captivating creature who comes onto the stage of a new world and shakes up everything. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 3 and the verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, who is Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, "Uh, we may eat uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say 
You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will surely die. (laughs) You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that as soon as you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, now I don't know where she got that unless that was part of her training that these wonderful trees in the garden, all of them are nutritious and good for food. And pleasing to the eye, she could see that. And also something desirable to make you wise. Where did she get that bit of knowledge? The devil. She took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and that's a whole nother story, and he ate it. By the way, no one sins alone. When you sin, your sin always touches others. Then the eyes of both of them were open. The serpent was right about that, but he was not right about what they would see. Instead of seeing wisdom and viewing things as God does, they had a distorted view of evil or a good view of their absence of righteousness because they realized that they were naked. Now that's physically, but there's also this sense of barrenness, empty and without a covering. Because the very first thing they do is they sew fig leaves together and they make a covering for themselves. And so we have in Genesis chapter three one of the most astounding stories in all of the Bible and the one story that makes sense of everything that is to come. This serpent is striking and shrewd. And he interacts with a woman talking about God and happiness and life and gives the woman the idea that God wants to hold something back from you. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him and he wants no rival. That's why the prohibition. The serpent was not hideous. An unusual wild animal to be sure who had the gift and ability of speech. But he was striking and remarkable. He wasn't some ugly witch like in Snow White that knocks on the door with a poison apple. That story never made any sense to me. If I'm going to open the door and I see an ugly witch wanting to give me something to eat, you know, I'm not going to do it. But Satan is not the ugly witch. And so after this happens, the Lord God appears, and he knows all that's going on, but he asks man what has happened. And man said, the woman you gave me. And the woman said, the serpent in the garden that you created. Anytime we try to justify ourselves, we always end up pointing back to God as the problem. Three words of judgment come down on Adam the gardener. He's going to be toiling the land. The land's going to be cursed. And 
it'll be tough for him now to get his food. On Eve, the childbearer, there's going to be pain when she gives birth to children. Unbelievable pain. And on the serpent, why the serpent will be cursed above all animals. However, the serpent is not just a serpent. More than an animal. Because the very next verse has a second curse to it. This is chapter 3, verse 15. I have it on the screen for you. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. So the Lord is talking to the snake, the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed, interpreted as he, will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Notice this battle is personal between the serpent and the woman. Notice that it is generational. It has to do with their offspring. The conflict lasts long beyond the lifetime of Eve. It's ongoing conflict. And the conflict is brutal. Each strike a blow on the other. However, the blow of one is greater than the other. One will strike the heel while the other will crush the head. Now, what you don't see at the moment is an amazing word of hope called, get this, the Proto-Evangelium. Here is the first announcement of the good news of Christ, the earliest promise of his coming, which gives to us the underlying plot of the whole Bible as if appearing now in embryo but soon to be birthed throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, the Bible becomes a library of books that traces this enmity, this ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from Genesis to Revelation. Now we ask the question, who is the serpent? Did you notice that Genesis 3 doesn't tell us who he is? And I don't think the serpent looks like this, unless after the curse. Although, as snakes go, that's pretty good looking. But the snake has to crawl on its belly and eat dust. No, the serpent is more than a wild animal. This serpent has a seed that is going to battle with the seed of the woman. I think the best help comes to us from jumping all the way to the book of the Revelation. And you don't need to turn there in your Bible if you just want to write down references because they have a bunch of verses on the screen for you. Maybe that'll be helpful for you to see Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And jumping that far ahead, we read of this cosmic battle that takes place Part of it at the beginning of creation, part of it in the middle of creation, part of it bringing up the end. In fact, some people think that Revelation chapter 12 is the center chapter in the entire apocalypse, the book of the Revelation. 
And in verse 9 it says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called Satan, the devil, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so the serpent is Satan. Now if you've been around uh, church for a long time, you probably already had that one answered, right? You knew who that guy was. But it's interesting, introduced at the beginning of the Bible and conquered at the end of the Bible, he wreaks havoc throughout the pages of the scripture, as it says in verse 9, leading the whole world astray and the battle's on. In fact, the battle is so evident when you get into chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible tells us Adam lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and they named him Cain. Here's the first son now born to Adam and Eve. And what did Eve say? With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And it seems to me she's thinking in her head, here's the seed of the woman that's going to make right what we did in the garden. Here's the one who is going to wipe out the curse and conquer the snake. But what she didn't know is that her first seed, her first son, was the seed of the serpent. Right? For another son is born named Abel, and as you read through the chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. And Eve has a third son named Seth to replace the son that was taken. And the conflict is on. The seed of the serpent attacking the seed of the woman. And you see the conflict everywhere. Egypt versus Israel in the book of Exodus. David versus Goliath in the book of Samuel. Babylon versus Jerusalem as we see the prophecies of Isaiah and Judah taken captive, it continues on, the good seed, the bad seed. But who is the seed of the woman? And we've already given our answer, I'm sure, to some degree. But it's very interesting that in the Bible, as it has been in history in most places, the family line runs through the male. And it's the seed of the male. And genealogies go from father to son to son to son. However, the scripture talks of the seed of the woman. Unusual. Well, how about this? In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the right time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, now, why would you even say that? <laughs> what son is not? But highlighting the fact that she, he's born of the woman and born under the law, and he's come to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. Who is this one born at the fullness of time? Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And although it doesn't say this in 
the prophecy of Isaiah, we want to finish it with these words, which means God with us, as Matthew quotes this wonderful prophecy. A virgin shall conceive, which means there is given birth in the human race a a man-child who is not the product of man. No seed of the male is used. But he is the son of God. This is a, a high evidence, a striking statement to help us Understand the mystery of the seed of the woman predicted so long ago. Someone brought this to my attention just a few weeks ago, and I thought this was fascinating and never thought of it before. You know, in John chapter 2, when Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, which, by the way, I think is beautifully portrayed in that new series called The Chosen. You need to watch it. It's great. But Jesus is at a wedding and his mom might have some responsibilities and family friends and he's there with some of his disciples and they run out of wine, which is going to be a great disgrace to the family. And Mary comes up to Jesus and says they've run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? Woman, my time has not yet come. Why do you involve me? Now, it is a bit bizarre for a son to call his mom woman. If I had tried that when I was growing up, I would have had my mouth washed out with soap. Dial soap. I remember that very well. (laughs) You don't call me woman. And in that day, they didn't either. It was Abba for father and Ima for mom. Woman? Why do you involve me? He does it another time on the cross when he talks to Mary and says, Woman, behold your son, and gives the Apostle John responsibility for his mom. Now, the seed of the woman has to be the Son of God. And you can look at the passages in in Galatians chapter 3 where obviously the promise line of the coming Messiah goes through Abraham and the seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's clearly stated in Galatians chapter 3. But we're talking about the seed of the woman here still pointing to the Savior. Now it is the purpose of the seed of the serpent to destroy the seed of the woman. There will be enmity ongoing and the battle is brutal. And the devil takes every opportunity he can to eliminate the Savior. Think of this from Revelation chapter 12 and I'll not read all of it but it's a very fascinating prophecy where the Bible tells us there's a great sign that appears in heaven and a woman clothed with the sun, moon, a moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars on her head. She's pregnant and cries out in pain as she's about to give birth and then another sign appears in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and Seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that the dragon might destroy her child the moment it's born. 
And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Quotation from Psalm 2, that's Jesus. And then you go a little further and it says the, red dra the dragon is none other than that serpent, that ancient serpent of old who leads the whole world astray. Where was the dragon when Jesus was born? Herod? Killing all the male children in Bethlehem in hopes that a rival king might be taken away. Herod is the seed of the serpent. He's always around. Other cases of trying to destroy Israel, the promised people, are abundant throughout the Old Testament. But when we get into the New Testament, here is the work of Herod. Or how about in Matthew chapter 1, where you have the Lord Jesus Christ meeting, uh, meeting Satan face to face. Matthew 4, excuse me, the wilderness. Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit for this encounter with the devil himself and he tries to get Christ to bow down and worship him. Come on my side. And Jesus resists him with verses of scripture. I think the devil wanted to kill him in the wilderness or at least to get him off course. But it didn't work. Or how about this? Did you notice when Jesus was ministering on the earth how many times he had confrontations with demons? Like in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, he's teaching in the temple, in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum. And someone demon-possessed comes out and says, I know who you are. You're the son of God. Have you come to destroy us? <laughs> the demons know the battle is on and it's a battle between the two seeds and they know who Jesus is. By, by the way, it's astounding. They know who Jesus is, but the disciples don't know who Jesus is. The devil's theology is pretty interesting. He knows the divinity of Christ, and if you go to James, he knows uh, the fact that God is one. He's monotheistic. There's, if you believe that there's one God, you do well. Demons believe that much. Or how about this in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus runs into a demon-possessed individual, and Jesus said, what is your name? And the demon said, my name is Legion. A Roman legion is 6,000 people. It only takes one demon to mess up a man. Why 6,000? It's only speculation. But game is on. And the demons want to do whatever they can to destroy this one that they know is the seed of the woman. An extravagant deployment of demonic forces had Jesus as their ultimate target, said, so, said one Bible scholar. So at the beginning of his ministry, he is confronting these powers of darkness. But now we've got to move ahead a little bit to the time of the cross. John chapter 12 and verse 31. Jesus, his soul was troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it's because of this hour I've come. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world 
will be driven out. So the devil that he's been fighting all along, who has been trying to trip him up, will be dealt a fatal blow at the cross. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, this is Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus said to those who had come, those religious leaders who had come to try him and execute him, he said, this is your hour, the hour when darkness reigns. But soon, the prince of this world will be driven out. So when does Jesus crush the serpent's head? Again, if you've been around church very long, you might say, at the cross? <laughs> That's exactly right. When Jesus said, it is finished, it meant that he had dealt that fatal blow to the devil. He had crushed his head as well as performing all that needed to be done for the redemption of all of those who would believe in him for the forgiveness of their sin and for the imputation of righteousness to them so that they could be acceptable before a holy God. All the righteous declarations of the law have been fulfilled. It's done. And that's when Jesus willingly gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus came, according to 1 John chapter 3, to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of lies. But the reason the Son of Man came, and by the way, you can find multiple reasons for the coming of the Son of Man, but here's one clear one. He came to destroy the seed of the serpent and all of his works. So you've got this ongoing ancient battle that began in the garden and won't end until ultimately until Jesus comes again but what does it matter it's one thing to have a little theological knowledge but what does it matter I tell you the big import of all of this to me is Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Remember Jesus said that the reign of the power of the evil one is this hour. The prince of this world, the God of this world is going to be taken out. He's had his time. And it comes in stages, this ultimate victory, doesn't it? The cross deals the death blow. But Satan isn't totally eliminated until the book of the Re Revelation chapter 20. But the point is, all of these kingdoms that do indeed call their God the seed of the serpent will be vanquished by the seed of the woman. They are being vanquished by the movement of the gospel. And every soul that comes to Christ is another victory against the seed of the serpent and another victory for the seed of the woman. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. This is the Esca Evangelium. 
I just invented that word. Eschatos being last and evangelium, good news. Here is the final completion of the gospel. And Jesus wins. What does that mean to you and I? <laughs> Praise God, we should be happy. We're on the victor's side. I watched that historical film, The Darkest Hour, with Winston Churchill. Did you see that? And I was dying inside with the Allied forces. And Churchill said, we're going to win. And he had this wonderful bravado, but he didn't know. And everything looked against him. And praise God they won, or the world would be different. But Jesus has proclaimed victory, and everything seems to be against him. But we know he's going to win. So of all people, we should be encouraged, hopeful, confident, and trusting in the one who came to die in our place. Revelation chapter 12 is like a movie in high definition of what was proclaimed and promised and predicted way back in Genesis chapter three. It's gonna be fun to watch. It's gonna be fun to watch. Oh, there's the gory parts. I'm not sure what the rating will be, but I do know this, Jesus wins. And the seed of the woman is the savior of the world. And all God's people should say, <laughs> amen. Heavenly Father, there may be some today who don't know Christ as savior, and I hope in the midst of all of this, they might get a glimpse of the wonderful son of God who loved us so much he came to die in our place. The cross looked like a colossal failure, but it was the greatest victory of heaven ever. And that Jesus died, but rose again, and now lives seated at the right hand of God, willing to save all of us who come by faith to him, turning from our other trusts, turning from our sin, and trusting Jesus alone. We become, on the winning side, a confident individual. So Lord, I pray, draw some people to Jesus today with a simple, of, simple gospel of turn from your sin, trust the Savior, and you too will live forever. But Lord, for Christians who are so discouraged, we seem to get that way. Especially during days like this. Give us the confidence that your word is perfectly being fulfilled in the fullness of your time. And when Jesus comes, there will be vindication and salvation and glory forever and ever. And we can't wait. Heavenly Father, cause us in the few moments of prayer to do business with you right now. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.